Welcome to this episode of Inside the NCAA, the AMA Experience. My name is Chris Johnson, and I'm an Associate Director for Academic and Membership Affairs. Our goal is to provide you insight on what we in AMA encounter on a daily basis. We will have subject matter experts from the national office and within the membership to discuss hot topics impacting all three NCAA divisions. For today's episode, we're going to discuss the makeup and philosophy of the NCAA Enforcement Department with John Duncan, Vice President of Enforcement. John, how are you doing today? I'm good, Chris. It's been a busy day, but it's been good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's been a busy day as well for me. Finished up some council meetings and standing committees meetings for this week. So, But before we dive into to really the Enforcement Department's makeup and philosophy, Let's get into your background a little bit, and how did you come to the national office and get interested in collegiate sports? Yeah, well, it's interesting you asked that, Chris, because I didn't mean to work here, um, and I didn't really intend to take a job at the at the NCA national office. I'm really glad that I did. I love it here. I'm so thankful for this opportunity. But about ten years ago, the national office was uh, considering some changes in the enforcement approach, the enforcement department, and I had been practicing law at that time. Um, and had been representing the NCAA for about 15 years in court, litigating cases all over the country on behalf of the NCAA, some of them enforcement related, some of them not. And the, the national office called and asked if I would be interested in leading the enforcement department. And to my surprise, um, offered me that position first as an interim and then thereafter uh, the full-time position. So that was early 2013 and, and uh, glad to still be here doing it. Yeah, so it's coming up on 10 years, and uh, talk to us about your guiding principles as the Vice President of Enforcement. Well, the guiding principles, any, any conversation about the guiding principles has to start with our mission, which is legislated. And we're one of the unique departments in the national office, or the NCAA more broadly, in that our mission is legislated. And by that I mean it's in the manual, Divisions 1, 2, and 3, in Article 19, lays out the the mission of the infractions program, and we are one part of that infractions program. And it's more wordy than this, Chris, but basically it says uh, make sure that compliant programs are not disadvantaged by their commitment to compliance. That's the mission. Um, It involves preventative maintenance and, and preventing violations if we can, and that's our main goal, and then consequences for those violations that occur nonetheless. And so that's the legislated mission. Our philosophy, our approach, maybe, I think was your question, our guiding principles, are um, to remind ourselves that we are professional service providers working for the member institutions and for the student-athletes who are competing in NCAA sports every year. They are our customers, they are our clients, and we are providing professional services to them. And so we want to honor confidentiality, we want to be available, we want to be accessible, we want to make what is widely believed to be an an unpleasant process as pleasant as possible, or at least remove as much mystery from it as we can. And so we try to be human, we try to um, be as reasonable as we can, we try and listen to the membership, prioritize what is a priority for the members, and uh, work with them to, to have as, uh, as painless a process through the infraction, uh, as painless an experience through the infractions process as possible. Sometimes we're better at that than others, but I'm really proud of the mission that we've got, the people that we've got, and how we approach really difficult work uh, from day to day. And talking about the people that you have in the enforcement uh, department, 
I know when I came here, I didn't realize the number of departments there were there that were in the enforcement department. Uh, can you talk to us about uh, the makeup of the enforcement department and the different the different sub departments, so to speak, sure. underneath? Yeah, there are multiple units within enforcement, but all and I'll get into those. But all of them, everybody on our staff, is 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 really an incredible talent, and I'm really thankful. I'm not just saying that; that's just not vice presidential rhetoric. It's true. I mean, I really love the people in enforcement. We've got diverse talent. We've got people from from all kinds of different backgrounds, and um, they're really um, good people in it for the love of the game, trying to provide good service to member institutions, working on behalf of student athletes, trying to protect the game and, and achieve the mission that we've talked about. And they are high quality people. To the surprise of many in the membership, or maybe more, more accurately the public, they're human, we're human. We have highs, we have lows, we celebrate together, we grieve together, and um, we're, we're we're, we're just more human than people probably realize. But your question is about our our structural makeup, and there's a handful of departments or, or units within our department. Most people think of enforcement, they think of investigators, and we have those. Um, but we don't have just those. And so our investigations and processing team is um, is exactly what, what it sounds like. They run down facts, they work really hard to get to the bottom of what happened, uncover um, um, the, 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 the factual uh, record that is relevant to, de- to determining whether a violation occurred and then working together with the school and the involved coaches, their lawyers, to take a case through resolution and there's many different ways that that could happen. In addition though to the investigations and processing staff, we've got a development staff. You can think of them as lead generators or marketers or sales uh, uh, personnel whose job are fundraisers, whose job it is to bring information in. The, the elevator speech for them is they are here to proactively put us in a position to learn about violations that would not otherwise be reported. Because dirty little secret, not all violations are reported. And so they're former players and scouts and all manner of backgrounds, and they've got a network of sources that, uh, that provide information to us. We hand it over to the investigators um, who then try and substantiate what often comes from confidential sources. In addition to those two groups, so in addition to investigations, processing, and development, we have enforcement certification and approvals group. A lot of people don't know that that reports through enforcement, but that's agent certification, scouting service approvals, and basketball um, event certification. Sandy Parrott leads that group and does a, a great job. We also have level three secondary staff. We've got a team dedicated to those violations that are sometimes forgotten or minimized by the public, but those are really important behaviors and really important consequences to the membership. And Chris Strobel does a great job leading that team. There's 5,000 of those, give or take, in a year, uh, in any given year. And then we have uh, quality control and operations, um, which, as the name suggests, is you know the operational element of our shop, but also that group does a great job of managing our goals, our data, our metrics, making sure that we all stay on track um, and make measurable um, quantitative progress toward our goals. They also help assure consistency between and among cases, which I know is a concern among the members, and I wish people could see the great work that quality control does. 
and uh, and the operations team. So that group is led by Janelle Zimmer. Um, operations uh, or uh, investigations and processing reports up to Brennan Barnhart, uh, who does a great job, and uh, the development uh, works up to reports up to Mark Kicks, um, who's a former coach, lawyer, also does a great job. So, in a nutshell, Chris, that's your org chart for uh, at a high level for the enforcement department. Yeah, and I I feel like it's really interesting too to to know some of the enforcement department. Uh, you know, their backgrounds are very, very different. Uh, they're a variety. Um, we talked about campus administrators as well, uh, even some coaches along the way that have come over to, to work with you. And, and how has that helped you gain the trust of the membership, not only for those campus administrators, but the coaches and student athletes? Yeah, I wish I could go through the background, Chris, of everybody on our staff. Um, it's widely reported we've got former law enforcement, and we do. We've got um, uh, a 17-year veteran of the FBI who spent uh, a career doing cybersecurity and counterterrorism and espionage, and we've got that. We've got a lot of folks with legal backgrounds. Um, we've got former players, former coaches. We've got a longtime scout from the from the NBA. We've got academicians, um, uh, but we have a lot on purpose. We have a lot of campus representatives as as well. Former compliance officers, former. Um, administrators of, of one form or another and, and I think your question was how does that help us with credibility we want the members to understand that there are people in enforcement who can appreciate the challenges on campus it's tough to monitor it's tough to go toe-to-toe sometimes with a coach or you know any number of different um, boosters or, or, or characters that we see out there and so we want the membership to look at the national office and see people who have experience in their world and also outside expertise from other backgrounds. And so we blend those together all in an effort to try and provide high quality and you know investigative services, but without losing touch of what the, what it means to be really challenged on campus and having to comply with, apply, and monitor countless NCAA rules. And so I hope that when the membership looks at us, they see humans like we talked about before, but also people who understand their world and the challenges. And we export a lot of our talent to the membership, and we make most of our hires from the membership. And that relationship seems to work really well. Yeah, I'd agree. I feel like I'm in a unique perspective where I've seen it on the campus side, and then I've seen it also, uh, you know, within academic and membership affairs. And that human aspect, whether I was on campus or within the national office, has been the same. And it's great people who understand not only the legislation, but also the human aspect of it as well. Um, you, you also talked a little bit about the collaboration between the different departments. Do you, do you mind expanding a little bit more on the, the different departments? Yeah, well, we all live in a, in a pretty um, discreet office area inside the national office and we're, we work in a hybrid environment so we don't have quite the the interaction that we used to pre-covid but we work really hard on our culture <clears throat> to make sure in a lot of ways that it's a healthy environment with the end being that we provide good service to the member schools and so we feel strongly that a healthy internal culture a communicative internal culture is the way we provide the best service to member institutions. And so we're not perfect by any stretch. And there's always ways that we can communicate internally better. Um, But we work really hard to over-communicate so that development knows what IP is doing and vice versa. And there's always good information coming into and out of uh, event or uh, enforcement certification and approvals group. Our level three secondary staff is so good at helping us keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on 
out there and quality and operations keeps it all working together at a high level and so routinely in meetings in the office or via virtual you know remote options many of those groups are represented oftentimes all of those groups are represented um, so that the whole department knows what each individual group is doing in an effort to have fully informed thinking inside um, fully informed communications outside and we think that's the best way to keep um, to keep existing staff tracking on what's going on but also in a position to, to provide responsive answers and helpful trends and the best possible service to the member schools and talking about the member schools and the student athletes there's been a lot of developments recently with sports wagering with individual states uh, with new legislation that comes about um, talk about how student athletes are impacted and, and maybe where enforcement can continue to, to, to help the student athletes in this case yeah that's 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 been an um, sports wagering has been an issue that the NCAA generally and enforcement specifically have been working on for years many years We've seen a lot of activity there recently, partly driven by state legislation, partly driven by changes in the federal legislative landscape, and then partly just um, changing cultural um, views on on certain behaviors, including um, sports wagering. But I think your question had mostly to do with state laws. And what what we do see is decriminalizing behaviors. Um, doesn't change the NCA rules, but it makes it seem less of a problem sometimes, less unbecoming. You don't have to, a student athlete or a coach, they're gambling too, don't have to go to an offshore or underground bookie anymore. It's easy on your phone and it doesn't feel dirty. And so we're seeing an uptick in, in sports wagering around the country not limited to student athletes, not limited to coaches, but they are, we know, gambling. Um, There are multiple concerns when we see gambling at any level, certainly when we see an uptick. One, first and foremost, is student athlete well-being. Um, There are concerns around mental health. There are concerns about addiction. There are concerns about harassment of student athletes by third parties. And there's a lot of effort around educating, supporting, otherwise providing resources to student athletes in a really highly addictive um, area. So student athlete well-being, first and foremost, is our interest. And we're always looking for partners. We're always looking for resources. We're always looking for ways to make sure the student athletes know what the rules are, know what the laws are, but more importantly, are in a position to make good, well-informed, healthy choices. Um, The other piece that that the national office is tracking on, not only enforcement, um, is the integrity of contests. Mm -hmm. And when you inject sports wagering into the equation, you have the risk of traditional match fixing or point shaving or whatever term you want to to attach to that. And so in that area, we work together with state and federal law enforcement, with gaming commissions, with American Gaming Association, with some of the for-profit businesses involved in sports wagering and um, most importantly probably integrity partners to monitor contests and the NCA monitors give or take more than 13,000 contests a year which I think is more than any other sports agency in the world um, to make sure that the integrity of the game remains intact so those twin interests student-athlete well-being and integrity of the contests um, are where we're seeing activity it's where we're seeing concerns it's where we're dedicating our resources, and it's where we welcome um, problem-solving 
ideas from all these partners and members alike. Yeah, sports wagering continues to grow. Uh, I feel like every week I hear a new state has enacted some sort of legislation, uh, either allowing it or even prohibiting it further. Um, so thank you for taking the time to share share that. We're going to switch gears a little bit, kind of come back internally. Um, we've had Stan on the podcast before, and, and he talked about the collaboration between the three regulatory departments, AMA, Eligibility Center, and Enforcement. Um, talk to us about you know, maybe the collaboration you may have with, with the other with the other departments within regulatory affairs. Yeah, well, you, you started with Stan, and that's a good place to start because when he began in his in his role as Executive Vice President for Regulatory Affairs, and ever since then, he has talked about members having a seamless experience across the regulatory departments, and the and that's that's important to him. It's important to the members, and it's something that we feel strongly about as well, um, because there are instances, there are cases where a specific set of behaviors can involve the eligibility center and AMA and enforcement, or two of those. Um, and there's any number of different combinations. And so good communication between and among the, part, the departments is really um, critical. And again, kind of like our internal units, we could always be better. But I, I feel good about the communication between enforcement, the eligibility center, and AMA. But I need to put a finer point on that. Because I, what I don't want is for members to conclude that those are inappropriate, case-specific lobbying communications. Because it's not that. The collaboration and communication that happens around this building and in our respective departments and between them is comparing notes on policy issues to make sure that we've got consistent um, messages, consistent answers, consistent approaches to make sure that AMA is aware of what we're hearing and what Eligibility Center may be seeing on the, on the pre-enrollment side so that the left hand, frankly, knows what the right hand is doing to inform um, policy decisions, general approaches, uh, to help the members make fully informed legislative decisions or policy changes. And all that's good and all that's healthy, and that happens a lot, and it's not unusual to see AMA representatives or Eligibility Center representatives physically in our space. We just happen to have um, a nice area. We call it the living room, and it's not unusual to see two or three of our departments represented in an informal conversation in the living room, and I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also need to be careful to not um, encroach upon each other's decision-making responsibility in in a specific case. And we've got really clear and important and sturdy walls there to make sure that there's never any suggestion that the enforcement, for example, is trying to influence AMA on a waiver application or an interpretation request, or that AMA is not somehow lobbying us on you know, what we investigate or at what level or what charges are appropriate. So we communicate at a healthy level, but we avoid those pitfalls um, that, uh, that could cause members concerns, and we don't get anywhere near those. But overall, um, the, the lines between AMA, Eligibility Center, and enforcement are there, but they're blurry in a good way. Yeah, they're intentionally blurry, but I think it works out for everyone to understand kind of everyone's on the same page. Left hand knows what the right hand's doing and vice versa as well. We say we say in our shop a lot, both internally and externally, good things happen when people talk to each other. And I believe that strongly. And that, that applies within regulatory affairs and also beyond. Awesome. Thank you, John, for taking the time to talk to us today about the enforcement department and how your department works to create fairness both on the field and off the field. 
And to our audience, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Inside the NCAA, the AMA Experience. Be on the lookout for our future episodes later this July. Thank you.